Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 9 today. Verses 7 to 9 really unpack the principle which Jesus teaches us in verses 5 and 6. So although Ryan preached on uh, the previous verses, it's important to fully understand what's going on in verses 7 and 9. You have to sort of understand it in light of what verses 5 and 6 are saying. So we're going to read that. This Sunday, we're looking particularly at the responsibility that we have as individuals with regards to fighting against temptation and fighting against sin. If sin could be compared to a cancer in the body, we're all called to try and cut that cancer out of our lives, to try and cut sin out of our lives. Next week, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20, which talks about sin, dealing with sin in the larger gathering of the church. And so this week, we're dealing with temptation and the, the responsibility that we have to cut that out of our individual lives. And next week, we're looking at the responsibility that we have as well to address that in the church as a whole. So if you would, look with me, Matthew 18, verses 5 to 9. We'll read the, uh, the text there, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask God for his help, and we'll get to work. So Matthew 18, 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, this is Jesus talking. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world! For temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is a textual note, the last phrase there. It says hell of fire. Most of your Bible translations will have a little footnote. In the footnotes, it'll say Gehenna. That's important understanding that this is a literal, real place. We'll get into that as we look at the text this morning. Would you please bow with me for a word of prayer? God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, as, as we look at this text this morning, it's a difficult passage. It's a difficult passage about an amazing responsibility that we have to strive to be like your son. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would take seriously the calling that is on our lives to resist temptation, to fight against sin with all that we have, and to live for you, believing that the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, is delighting in you and in obeying you and what you say. We pray, Father, that you would drive that home to us this morning. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I have this recurring nightmare. I don't know that I would call it a nightmare because... I'm not exactly freaked out by it, but it is a little uncomfortable. Don't, don't get Sigmund Freud on me here and try to psychoanalyze me. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But for whatever reason, I have this dream that I have over and over again. And what's ironic is 
I never had it when I was in high school when it would have probably done me some good to actually have this dream. The dream is I dream that I'm in a classroom and I'm sitting there and the teacher is talking. I don't know if you've ever seen the old Charlie Brown, but it's like wah, 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 wah. I don't know what she's saying. It just sounds like Charlie Brown teacher going wah, wah, wah. And uh, everybody's kind of sitting around me and, and it's like a normal classroom and I have absolutely no idea what she's saying. But then everyone around me reaches into their backpack or their, their sack or whatever they've got there, and they pull out this paper assignment of some form, and the teacher's all like, wah, 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 and she's gesturing, and then everybody starts to hand in these assignments. And I'm like, not sure what's going on, because uh, I don't have an assignment, and I don't have a homework to turn in, I don't have a paper to give, I got nothing. And uh, all the papers kind of go to the front of the classroom, and she kind of goes around and gathers them all up, and then there's this moment where she kind of pauses, and she looks right at me, and all the other students in the room kind of all turn and look at me, and I'm sitting there saying, I don't know. I don't got anything. And that moment, I usually wake up, and I'm like, ah, okay, did I do my homework? And it's ironic, because I haven't been to school in like 10 years now, so it's like there's no homework that I have to turn the next day. But I have this dream. It's not like every week I dream this. It's some you know, it's maybe once a year I have this dream, but it keeps coming up every now and again. I'll dream this dream, and I'll always wake up in that moment, go downstairs, pull out my calendar, have I done this, have I done this, and I, I'm checking off all the to-do lists. For whatever reason, I'm now extremely uncomfortable that I'm forgetting about some responsibility that I need to be attending to. I don't know if you've ever had that dream. I'm just going to ask, have any of you had anything similar to that where you realize, oh, I've forgotten to do something? Yeah, it's kind of weird. There's a, there's a feeling that you get that there's a responsibility that you have that you've neglected. There's something that's due. There's something that you should have taken care of that you overlooked. Not willfully, just you forgot about it. The reason why I share this with you this morning is because I think that when we approach our relationship with Christ we like all of the benefits and all of the blessings that we get as a result of the grace he purchased for us on the cross, but there's something that I think we neglect sometimes. In the book of Hebrews, it says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And one of the things that Jesus is talking about here in this particular passage if we have truly surrendered in faith to him, as we sang a few moments ago, if we have surrendered all to him, and that includes those desires to do things that we know are wrong. And Jesus addresses that. Look with me here. We're going to briefly touch on the principle. It says in verses 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a parallelism. We're going to see another one a little bit later on. If you'll notice, it says, whoever receives one such child in my name. You jump to verse 6, one of these little ones who believe in me. So it's using the word child, which, you know, the word literally means like a small child, maybe even an infant. But the way that Jesus is talking about it, particularly in light of what he's just said in verses 1 to 4, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about people who believe in him. He likens faith to the sort of humble submission of a child to his mom and dad. That kind of faith constitutes a Christian believer. So Jesus is talking about 
not small children per se, although if they are Christians, it includes them. He's talking about you and me. And what he's saying here is whoever receives, now this is ancient Middle East, this is a custom, you have the spirit of hospitality, there's a, a sort of a, a, an unwritten code that if someone comes to you and visits you, you receive them into your home, you take care of them, you look after them, you meet their needs. Jesus is touching on that. He says basically whoever receives a Christian, whoever receives one such little one in my name, whoever receives a Christian receives not only the Christian, but as far as Christ is concerned, you're receiving Jesus. So we can say whenever we welcome each other into our homes, we're not just paying a kindness or a courtesy to each other, though we are. The way we treat each other is how we treat Jesus. Jesus views what happens to you as though it is happening to him. He is so close to you, he walks so carefully alongside you if you are a Christian, that whatever you experience, whatever heartaches you know, whatever joys you celebrate, he is right there with you, experiencing those heartaches and delighting in those joys. I want you to turn with me, stick your finger here, and go with me to the book of Acts. Specifically, I want you to go to uh, Acts chapter 5, and I want you to see something. There is an account in the early church. There's uh, people who are struggling financially, and uh, they, a number of the different believers in the church, they start to uh, give money to help out with uh, those who are struggling financially. And it says in Acts chapter 5, there's these two, these two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira. And they sell a piece of property, and uh, it doesn't give us the exact amounts, but uh, let's just say the property's worth like $10,000. They sell a property, it's worth $10,000, and they take like half of it, and they bring it. So they bring like $5,000, and they give it to the church. Nothing wrong with that, okay? They could have just as easily said, we're keeping 5000 and here we're giving you guys 5000 And they were well within their rights to do that. But the problem was they sold this property for 10000 and then when they came to the church, they said, here's $5,000. This is the total sum of the property. In other words, they're playing it off as though they're totally sacrificing the entirety of the property to help out meeting the needs of, of the Christians in the church who are struggling financially. And of course, Peter, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to him that that's not that's not right. And he makes this statement, a man named Ananias with his wife's fire sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter, verse 3, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, is Ananias, or Sapphira for that matter, talking to the Holy Spirit? Yes, they are. Now, they don't see the Holy Spirit just sort of standing there. It's not like, oh, hello, Mr. Holy Spirit. They're talking to the church. And when Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, he doesn't say, hey, you guys lied to us, although that's equally true. His statement is, you, why? he says, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, which indwells every Christian? When Ananias and Sapphira lie to the members of the church, yes, they're lying to real flesh and blood people, including Peter, but more than that, they are lying to the Spirit of Christ, whom Jesus has filled every believer with, those who have trusted in Him. And he goes on, he says the same thing 
to, uh, now he, he says this to Ananias a little later on, uh, Sapphira's going to come in, and it says in verse uh, 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? It is the spirit that searches the hearts. And the spirit is incidentally what revealed this truth to Peter. But the testing that was going on was, are we going to be honest with each other? Are we going to be authentic with each other knowing we're not just talking to mere people. We're talking to children of the holy living God. Okay, forget Acts chapter 5 and flip a couple more chapters over. Go with me to Acts chapter 9. Paul, who at this time is known as Saul, filled with zeal, he is persecuting the church. He's killing Christians. And of course, there's this incredible Damascus Road experience in which Jesus confronts Paul as he's on his way to the city of Damascus to kill more Christians. And Jesus confronts Paul, and Saul at this time, he's known as Saul. And this white light shines, and there's this thundering voice from heaven, and all the soldiers and all the guards who are with Paul, they fall down, and they can't make it out. They're not sure what's being said. But, Paul, but Saul hears it, and Jesus makes the statement to Saul in verse, this is Acts 9, 4, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul is in the business of killing Christians, flesh and blood people. These are people who live for Christ. But as far as Christ is concerned, anything done to a believer is done directly to Jesus. In Matthew 18, verse 5, Jesus says, whoever receives one of these little ones who believe in me or receives one of these little ones in my name, they are receiving me. Now, that's a wonderful promise. As I look out at this room, the Spirit lives in all those of us who have trusted in Jesus, which means... As I interact with you, there's more to you than just you. And to the flip side of that coin, there's more to Jesus. There's more to God than just God. And this is the mind-boggling thing. God is holy. He is infinite. He is magnificent. He fills the universe but he takes us to be with him such that we are a family. And whatever happens to us happens to him. And he bears and feels all the consequences of what we experience. There's an amazing promise in Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, go and make disciples. He says, go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you know, baptizing, making disciples, teaching them to observe everything. And he makes this last statement. He says, and I tell you the truth, I am always with you, even until the very end of the age, put another way, until the end of time, which is forever and ever, into all of eternity. That is so reassuring. I love that. Give me an extra scoop of that promise. Jesus is always with me. Give me 10 extra helpings of I will never leave nor forsake you. 
We love that. And we want to grab onto that. And we want to hold that because that is an amazing truth. No matter what we face, Christ is always with us. Give us that promise. But don't forget, before Jesus makes that promise in Matthew 28, 19, he precedes it with the statement, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching them to observe everything. Funny way of saying that, teaching them to observe. Funny way of talking about the need to learn, and it also kind of touches on the manner in which we learn. Observing. But I get a bit ahead of myself. The negative is also present here in Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but... Here's the adversative. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. They couldn't go to Walmart and buy a loaf of bread. Everybody had to make bread from scratch. The way that it works is you go out and you harvest a bunch of wheat and you throw it on some grinding stones. They'd have a large stone on the bottom and there'd be another stone put on top. They'd hook it to an oxen. It would turn it around in circles. It would grind all the chaff and all the wheat. It would separate the wheat out from the stalk and all the other stuff so that you could use that to make bread. Now, There's no exact one-size-fits-all. They have found numerous examples of millstones from the ancient Middle East. They range anywhere from 500 pounds upwards of 2,000 pounds. Here's the point. Jesus is saying, if you cause temptation to a person who believes in me, if you bring temptation, that is, you dare someone to live in sin, somebody who's a Christian, the better thing for you to do would be to commit suicide by strapping a 500 to 2,000 pound object around your neck and drowning yourself in the sea. Jesus is saying quite emphatically, whoever receives a Christian receives me and better not tempt a Christian. Better not lead a believer into sin. It would be more preferable for you to choose suicide than to do something like that. A powerful, powerful warning which reminds us Jesus loves us and he hates sin. He died on the cross to forgive us, but let's not lose sight of the fact that he had to die on the cross. When we diminish the horror of sin, we misrepresent God's estimate of sin and we downplay the depths of his love for us. If you minimize sin, you minimize grace. Which means that when Jesus says, I love you so much, I am one with you. You are my child. You belong to me. And whatever happens to you happens to me. Don't lose sight of the fact that the same Savior who makes that promise must also say, nobody better tempt you. The implication being, we have a responsibility not to be tempted. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Now, when we look at this next verse, Jesus is pointing the fact that it's absolutely essential that there is going to be temptation. In this broken, fallen world in which we live, we can't get away from it. I, uh, I visited SeaWorld in Florida. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been to, anybody here been to uh, Disney World? Is it 
Yeah, Disney World. Yeah, that's right. In Florida? The one in Florida? Yeah, you have. Okay, did you go to the Sea World there? Yeah, okay, you remember the underground tunnel that kind of goes out into the bay? Isn't that thing sweet? Okay, so there's this Sea World here. There's this tunnel that goes out kind of into the bay. It's just, it's like right there on the, on the coast of the ocean. And it's about, I don't know, it's like, I can't remember now. I was, there. I was a kid when I was there. It's like maybe 20 or 30 feet under the water. And you kind of walk out into this tunnel, and you can kind of look out. Of, it's like this glass tunnel. If you've ever seen the movie Jaws, I think it's Jaws 3. It was filmed here, so they're like in this tunnel, and the Jaws is like attacking him in the tunnel or whatever. That's the tunnel that I'm talking about. It's about, I don't know, 30, 40 feet underwater. And uh, you go into this tunnel, and you look around, and they've got all these school, this, you know, different schools of different fish swimming around, and it's beautiful. Now, here's the thing. It's pressurized because it's about 40 feet underwater. The air down there is super heavy, and it's super thick. You're in the midst of this. If this thing fails, you're just going to get swamped with water 40 feet down below. But even in this tunnel with the air around you, the air is thick because they have to pressurize this thing to keep it from leaking, to keep water from coming into it. So the air is heavy, it's humid, and it's thick. This is the environment that you're in when you're down below under all the water. When Jesus makes the statement, it is necessary, the understanding of this Greek word is not one of causality. Jesus is not saying that God willed for sin to be all around you, that it was his desire for you to be subjected to sin. God created a world that allowed for the possibility of sin, but the ultimate responsibility for the existence of sin rests with us. This word can be interpreted necessary, but it doesn't necessarily speak to God's will in the matter. It speaks to natural cause. For example, when I take an apple using good old, you know, Isaac Newton physics here, throw an apple up, what goes up must come down. Put it another way, the way the scriptures are putting it here, what I throw up, it is necessary that it comes down. In other words, there's a natural cause and effect. There's a natural relation. What Christ is saying here is, you're going to experience temptation. You're going to experience temptation the same way that if an apple is thrown up in the air, it has to fall. It has to fall to the ground. Living in this world is like walking in the depths of the sea through that tunnel. The air presses in on you. The water threatens all around. If we're going to live in this world, which we're going to have to, we're going to be subjected to temptation. It is not God's will that we be subjected to temptation. It's just the natural result of the world that we have created. So he makes this statement, woe to the world. That word woe, I think the meaning of it is fairly obvious in light of what he has just said. It would be better for a person who tempts you to be, to commit suicide than to tempt you. And then he goes on to say, woe to those who will tempt you. Woe to them. It's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom it comes. Which further draws out the meaning. God hates sin. He hates it. He doesn't want you to live in it. And he hates the fact that we live in a world that's going to pressure us to sin. Jump on down to verse 9. It says at the tail end of verse 9, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown 
into the hell of fire. Now, the actual word there is Gehenna. And we're talking about eternal hell. This is the second parallelism in this passage. If you look back at verse 8, at the tail end of the verse 8, it says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin or if your foot causes you to sin, chop them off. He says it's better to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. So there he says eternal fire. That is endless, never-ending fire. Then he comes on and he repeats the same sort of thing and he says better that than to be thrown into the Gehenna of fire. This word Gehenna, it's a transliteration from the Aramaic. It's from the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, Gehenom, which is the valley of Hinnom. If you do a search in the Old Testament, you're going to find this reference, the Valley of Hinnom, referencing a literal place, a geographical location, most likely, we don't know this is 100% certainly, most likely a narrow valley to the east of Jerusalem. So it would be the narrow valley, if the, if the location is correct that scholars have identified, it would be the same valley on the eastern side of the temple where when they slaughtered lambs every year at Passover, that blood would run down the eastern slopes into this valley. It would be what we would consider a combination of a dump, a place where we would take all of our unused trash and refuse. It would be a combination dump and sewer. It's not only a place where they would dump their trash, it's a place where they would take, they would basically clean out all the toilets from all of their houses as well. It's a literal place. They call it Gehinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. Originally, it belonged to the sons of a man named Hinnom. He used that valley as a place to collect trash. It was a place where there was always a fire burning in order to dispose of the trash, to try and get rid of it. It is a very real, it is a very literal place. And you find this used throughout the Old Testament over and over again. When God warns of judgment, he warns of the fact that those who reject him will be gathered and slaughtered together in Gehenna or Gehenna. This is the place where they will go. It's a horrible graphic reality that you and I are created for a purpose. We belong to God the Father. We were always meant to have a relationship with Him. We were always meant to worship Him. And if we reject that purpose for our lives, in the same way that trash from your house no longer serves a purpose, those individuals who reject Christ, who reject God, they no longer serve the purpose for which they were intended. In the same way the trash is gathered together, God says that those who have rejected him will be gathered together. He is using a very literal place to talk about a very real fate. This is not metaphorical. This is not something that is symbolic. This is an actual fate that awaits those who reject Christ. You're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, the eternal destiny of all those who reject God is to be burned in the same manner as trash. That sounds horrific. To which I respond, you're right. It is horrific. It is even more horrific to not celebrate and rejoice the most beautiful person in all of the universe. 
it is most horrific to deny the glory of God and all of the happiness and all of the joy that comes to those who embrace Him as a father. This illustrates the horror of sin. This whole passage, Jesus is saying, I love you, I died for you. Sin is what kills me for you. And I hate it. That's what Jesus is saying here. We love to talk about forgiveness. We love to talk about grace. Those are wonderful things. But remember, it's not free. It didn't cost God nothing. And he is emphatically clear and very explicit in pointing out this is the nature of sin. This is the fate that awaits those who reject me. Which means that for us, if we're to be his children, and if we're going to take seriously what Jesus is saying in this passage, number one, we've got to be serious about telling people the good news that they can have a relationship, that this fate does not have to await them. They can begin again with God. How will they observe everything that Christ has commanded if they don't observe it in us? Notice what he says here. I want you to look back at verse 8. Number one, Jesus says, you and I, we are one. I love you. I died for you. I hate sin. Anybody that takes good care of you, I like that. Anybody that causes you to sin, whoa, I don't like that. And then he says, woe to the world for sin. And he says, man, people who willingly embrace sin, they're going to hell. In the middle of this comes the application for you and me. What does this really mean for us? Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin. Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the Gehenna of fire. Your hand, or your foot, or your eye cannot cause you to sin. Jesus talks about the fact, back in Matthew chapter 5, that if we look at a woman lustfully, or for women, if you look at men lustfully, it's the same as committing adultery. It's the same as going the, the whole distance if you just have lust in your heart when you look at them. And he sort of, he says the same thing there that he's saying here. Better that you just plug out your eye than to go to hell with two eyes. You know, do whatever you got to do to stop yourself from sinning. Now, your eye doesn't actually cause you to sin. In fact, you don't even need your eyes. If you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, if you've ever looked at a pornographic image, you, you've got that thing locked away in your memory. It's entirely possible that you could gouge out your eyes and just, without being able to see, recall from your memory something that you should never have seen. It's possible that even with no hands and no feet, you can still wheel yourself into a place you shouldn't be. 
Get your buddies to take you somewhere. Where there's a will, there's a way. And no amount of self-mutilation will ever change the will. Which means that if we're going to change the will, the desire to chase after sin, we're going to have to have Christ change it for us. There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus is not advocating literally that we all need to go out of here today, find our sharpest butcher knife, and get busy, you know, chopping off appendages and whatnot in order to be holy. This is hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating for dramatic effect. You don't actually need a hand or a foot or a leg to sin, but what Jesus is saying here is, there should not be any measure too drastic that you are not willing to consider in order to keep yourself away from temptation. What Jesus is saying is, there should be no extreme lengths to which you are not eager to go in order to keep yourself from being tempted. There is no doubt that as a Christian, when we surrender to Christ, we love Christ, we want to repent of sin, our will is not to sin. Paul makes the statement in Galatians 5 that the spirit and the flesh are against each other, that these two come against each other in order to keep you from doing the things that you really want to do. In other words, the implication there is that as a Christian, you don't want to sin anymore, but your will is weakened as a result of the sinful world that we live in. Which means though you desire not to sin, your resolve to fight against it is weak. Which is why Jesus is saying, woe to those who tempt you. As it says in Psalms, he remembers our frame. That we are but dust. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're easily tempted. That's why he's so infuriated at people who attempt us. Yet, for you and me, the teaching is clear that we should employ any and every strategy necessary to keep ourselves from temptation and to keep ourselves from falling into sin. If I could bring this over into a 21st century context, I think that what Jesus would be saying to us is, you need to take a five-pound hammer to your laptop. You say, oh, but I love my laptop. I do my banking on my laptop. I pay my bills on my laptop. Yes, but that's not all that you do there, is it? If I could bring this over into a 21st century context, I think what Jesus would be saying is, old-school Nokia flip phones are better than iPhones. You say, oh, but I can cruise Facebook on my brand-new iPhone and the internet and all manner of things. Exactly. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I have an iPhone, okay? Like, I've got it here. I'm timing the sermon with it. It's an incredibly useful device. I personally do not struggle with the temptation to go on the internet and look at things that I ought not be looking at. That's not my, that's not my temptation. That's not my struggle. For some of us in this room today, that could be a struggle. And so what Jesus is saying is, it doesn't matter how practical, how beneficial, how much utility the tool brings into your life. The temptation to sin and the possibility to be tempted must always outweigh the practical benefit of the device. Let me say that again. 
I have no doubt that your computers are amazing, wonderful technological advances that help you to do a great deal. But from Christ's perspective, so is a hand. I use my hand for all manner of good things. I would miss my hand if it was gone. And yet what Jesus is saying is, as practical and as beneficial as your hand is, it does not outweigh the need for you to not sin. Now, we as Christians should not ourselves fall into sin, and we as Christians should not tempt others to sin. What we ought to do is seek to be a blessing to each other, to each other, to edify each other's lives, to receive one another, because in doing so, we receive Christ. And for every effort that we make to fight against sin in our lives, for every effort that we make not to be a stumbling block before our brothers and sisters, Christ sees that too. And he rewards that. So as we consider the Christian life, we like grace. It's awesome. I know that no matter how many times I fail, I will always be met with forgiveness and mercy. However, there's still a homework assignment that Jesus calls me to complete. There is still homework that is due. And as we close this morning, I just want to ask you, in every, in every church you go to, we, we like to talk about mercy. We like to talk about grace. And it is true, that is a wonderful understanding of God's love. But if we don't talk about his hatred of sin, we haven't really fully grasped the totality of how much he loves us. There is a homework assignment that you have to do if you really want to know how much God loves you. C.S. Lewis put it best. No man really understands how bad he is until he has really tried hard to be good. If we just accept mediocrity, if we just go through and accept the status quo, we know that Jesus will forgive us. He's got to give us grace, but there will be consequences if we put stumbling blocks before each other. But we're missing out on an incredible blessing. When you try really hard to be really good, you realize how really bad you really are. And what's amazing is, in that moment, you begin to really appreciate how much Jesus really loves you. If you don't make the effort to be good, you'll never grasp the depths of his love. So, as we wake up into eternal life, as we attend that final gathering, as we stand before the teacher of all teachers, the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, my prayer for you is that you will have made a valiant effort on your homework. Let's bow for a word of prayer.